Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Learning with Lowell show. Uh, we have new episodes every Tuesday. We cover things uh, pretty deep tech and science or really thoughtful that most people don't really get to talk about. You know, UI UX, uh, CRISPR technology, space, UFOs, you know, all these fun uh, things. Today, we're joined with Ryan Menjes, uh, a frequent guest of the show. Today, we're going to discuss basically everything involving UFOs and a number of other topics, but we're going to get into uh, focusing on unidentified objects and just have someone who's in the space kind of talk about her thought process and some things that she finds very interesting. So if you kind of want to hear from an expert on the cool stuff that's been coming out, this is a, a good episode for you. UAP, UFO, uh, people have been talking about it for decades. You know, Roswell, all these other things have been going on. And I think with new reports coming out, more data coming out, uh, it's always really hard to separate fact from fiction. And so for, for someone who knows this stuff, it, it lives in it, uh, knows the space inter- industry as, as well as you do. I'm curious, like, what, are the, what are the events and associated facts that really stand out to you that you think about or that you think are really, really important that you think most people maybe gloss over? Um, well, I think probably the, the uh, big event um, in, in most you know, recent times was the fact that the, the government through the Department of Defense has actually acknowledged that they're observing uh, aerial phenomena that, in, in, at least in their their announcement, they could not identify. And I think that's really interesting. Um, for me personally, when I was a little tiny kid, um, I, I, I actually saw a UFO. I was a, your classic nerd with a telescope. And uh, we were living in, in uh, Northern Michigan and my, my father, uh, just for, you know, um, he wasn't a crazy guy. He was a mechanical engineer and physicist. He was in the U.S. Navy. Um, he worked on the Manhattan Project. He started his career there uh, working for DuPont as a very young man and uh, had a commercial pilot's license, uh, sailed in the Pacific um, and Indian Oceans in the Navy. Um, so this, this was not a person who hadn't seen a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Now he'd been through war. He saw, you know, he was actually worked on the first atomic airplane. And yeah, I think people don't know that we actually had a nuclear powered airplane at one time. Um, so, and before I was born, but I, you know, heard stories about everything. So it wasn't like um, he wasn't some, you know, he wasn't Barney out on a tractor going, Hey, look at that. Um so I, I'm, I'm, I'm watching this thing with my dad. I had my telescope out and I said, what is that? I said, is that a, no, a supernova? And he said, no. And it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And then all of a sudden it just stopped and then zoom, you know, at a sharp angle, um, acute angle and just went off uh, it faster than anything we could have. And I went, well, that's interesting. And I said, what was that? And he said, that was a UFO. And that was the late seventies. So that was a, an interesting situation for me, but at that point in time, I was already positive that I was going to be like a space fighter pilot or something, because you know how kids think. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, so that was a interesting artifact event in my life. And for for years, um, you know, I was always curious uh, about what we would find in space. And in college, I studied obviously physics, but I also studied something called um, theoretical biology, mathematical biology, and actually have a degree in it. And uh, uh, so what, what would, you know, systems engineering look like in biological systems? How do we model biomimetic um, and, and morphing kind of structures and vehicles, but also what does that look like in terms of our interaction with unknown or theor- theor- theoretical life forms? And so I kind of looked at that when I was younger, um, but I, I uh, went into grad school and got my doctorate in aerospace engineering and nuclear physics and ended up at a place called Los Alamos. And within a couple of months of going to Los Alamos, I was recruited into the field intelligence unit there that which was run by Dr. Lawrence Booth. And at that time, it was one of the largest uh, civilian field intelligence units in the United States. And I ended up working in an area called FME, Foreign Material Exploitation. And it became very obvious at that point in time that our government in various agencies was very interested in organizations that studied UFOs because 
a lot of the spotters and trackers and people who do field analysis of uh, UAP events are, are trained aircraft observers and um, are actually kind of helpful in identifying potential adversary vehicles, you know, flying in our, our um, airspace. So there have been all kinds of programs um, looking at aerial phenomenon uh, for national security reasons. Um, there have always been rumors of issues around nuclear facilities when it, when it came to UFOs. My father told me a story of when he was going into Hanford one morning and he started flying when he was 14 years old. Um, so he's up in Richland, Washington and um, he sees three um, dots over the one entrance road to the uh, Hanford Engineering Works where they were recovering the plutonium, producing the plutonium for the, the first um, implosion bomb. And he said, we saw UFOs all the time up there. And I said, well, how do you know that they weren't, you know, surveillance aerostats, balloons from our government? And he said, they held station perfectly and they were always in formation and they would come and go without notice. And so he said, no, they're just, they, we just didn't know, you know, who or what they were, but they weren't, they weren't made here on earth. So the, the fact that aerial phenomena is, is frankly nothing new. Um, the, 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 the question is, of course, what is it? And there's a lot that we just, we just don't know. And the assumption always, uh, I think with UFOs is that we're dealing with alien life uh, that is probably interstellar alien life. And I'm not sure that's a, a reasonable assumption. It could be one assumption, but I don't think it's, it's the um, best assumption. The, the, the problem with most UFO groups is that you don't have trained observers and you, you don't have trained scientists or engineers who are familiar with things like atmospheric physics and, and um, uh, astronomy and things to actually make the, the best uh, decisions. That said, you have people who are scientists and engineers who've worked in really advanced areas of aerospace and atmospheric research that come back and say there's still two to 3% of all observed aerial phenomena that they just cannot explain. If you were to like, I guess, form a hypothesis and, and, and make a guess at what you think they, they are, if it's not aliens, is it just like a different type of weather phenomenon that we haven't encountered before? Like there's a different like branch of science that we just haven't gotten into to represent the 3% or how, how do you make sense of that unknown well, box? It, it's unknown. I mean, we, yeah. we don't know. Um, it could be unknown aircraft. It could be human designed. Uh, we're, we're doing a lot of work. My, my field of work is actually an area called functional structures and materials. And we're morphing um, aircraft structures and vehicles in ways we never thought we'd see. And I think a lot of people today, if they saw it, they might even be frightened by the fact that we can change the shape of an aircraft or a spacecraft pretty significantly. Um, the other interesting thing is if you remember the different reports that came out of Roswell, they said they could take the material, ball it up in their hand, drop it, and it would go back to its original shape. Mm -hmm. That sounds like um, a shape memory alloy, something that, that will maintain its structure and adapt to its environment. So that was kind of interesting. Um, we, the, the thing is, is that we just don't know. And mm -hmm. um, you know, the question is, are they interstellar? They could be, but we're dealing with extraordinary um, distances. There's a lot of the universe we can't see. That's why dark matter and dark energy exists because we can't see it. Um, so for physicists and a lot of people right now, and, and it's only starting to enter mainstream physics where it's being reported. Right now, we're starting to argue over whether the standard model is reasonable or not. Um, because a lot of people argue over issues of asymmetry with matter and antimatter. But there's a whole segment of the physics community that says, well, if it wasn't asymmetric, then we wouldn't exist because it would cancel each other out, which I think is an absurdity. Um, so, you know, the options are, are, is it human? Probably not. Is it interstellar? Not sure, unlikely. Uh, and the other thing here is, are they already here? And that doesn't mean that they're necessarily living among us, but 
we don't know a lot about the space in which we live. Our phenomenology as human beings is very limited. And when I say phenomenology, our ability to sense our environment as human beings is very limited. So the question is, you know, is our, if we break our dimension into different spaces, different spatial projections, like if we live in two space and they live in four or five space, we could share the same dimension, just live in a different space in terms of different projection. And that's a possibility. So that's actually kind of frightens some people I know that, that you know, we share our, our existence dimensionally, even though we're, we're different um, in terms of projected entities, we're, we're different types of projections in that, in that dimension. And that is a big discussion and, and with a lot, a lot of philosophers right now. Hmm. Yeah, I'm wondering, how would you prove that if there's like, especially how you like, you know, have to like have like a multi-dimensional camera of some, some kind. Uh, so you <laughs> well, can there see, are, there are people layers. doing some experiments. Actually, there's a, there's a TV show called Skinwalker Ranch. Oh, I and, think I've heard of this. Okay. Yeah. And you actually have real like astrophysicists and engineers and stuff trying to develop um, with, within the limits of the history channel. Okay. Um, <laughs> instrumental and uh, capabilities. And once again, we're talking about phenomenology and how we detect things. Engineers talk about phenomenology of sensors and imaging systems. So we know that um, people who work with like, what is it, the CE5 group that, oh God, what's his name? Um, the um, emergency room doctor turned UFO chaser. What's his name? Greer, Dr. Greer. I'm not, not, it's not popping in my head. Yeah, saying it's Stephen Greer. So you have this CE5 thing where the people go out and, and they've actually had instances where they have people gather and they start imaging stuff using non-visual, you know, imaging systems like infrared and multispectral systems and they actually pick up stuff. And it's really interesting um, that going back to this, this um, uh, Skinwalker Ranch because of my imaging work, uh, I um, actually called my former boss from Los Alamos, Mel Duran, and I said, I got to talk to you about something. There's something called, you know, LIDAR, um, mm -hmm. 3D imaging, right? So a slam yeah. systems. And the Skinwalker Ranch, I watched this episode. I actually bought it so I could see it. And they were imaging the inside of the building and all the data, all the backscatter information disappeared. And I thought, well, wow, that's really weird um, because that and my boss is like, well, let's talk about this. And I said, okay. I said, you know, first of all, it's it's not you know interference. It's the detector that's not functioning. There's there's interference with the detector, and they have lots of electromagnetic um, aberrant fields going on in this area. It's one of the reasons they're doing the research. That and they they observe and record um, aerial phenomena that they can't define. And so uh, we know that we've got to change the way we scan things in our environment in order to see things. I suspect we, we miss a great deal all the time. Um, and uh, animals around us, if you observe animals, they're much more um, sensory competent than humans are. Um, I know my dog can see and hear things that I don't see or hear. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you, know, it's, you know, it's interesting in Japan, when kids are growing up, they're actually taught to observe the animals uh, and the animal behavior because of something called tsunamis, <laughs> which are deadly because animals will detect a tsunami long before humans can. And I think, I think that's really interesting. So, um, you know, that's something I've been thinking a lot about. If we're gonna talk to non-human life from some other origin than earth we should probably be learning how to talk to the creatures we share the earth with in some way because we also share a lot of dna with them mm -hmm. um, the majority of vertebrates we share more than 95 percent of our dna so it's it's i, I i'm, I'm kind of concerned about our, our priority sometimes um but anyway, going back to what are UAP, what's UAP? We don't know. I assume UAPs are a number of different um, things that could be anything from intelligent 
um, systems to uh, non-human intelligence systems to even psychological warfare um, from our government or somebody else's. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. The, uh, the U.S. government is known for its weird experiments that it does sometimes. So I could see that being interesting. I, I, th- I was thinking it's just like the idea of like having it be like uh, a dimensional thing. And it doesn't even, they don't even have to necessarily be like intelligent life. They could be like a, like a tardigrade or something. And it just like pops through. And then it, it you know, because they just, some of the things I was reading, like they skip around a lot. Like it'll be in one spot, then it'll be in a different spot really, really fast. Mm-hmm. That, that's what's really weird to me because like the inertia of that i think would like you know you know uh flatten people or like when you go really really fast and take an angle like you know that would do that probably kill a human so and, you know i wonder well, what, yeah i mean if you look at that what they call the tic tac yeah. ufo with the navy um if you were going to actually look at that in terms of uh an, an inertial system you know in 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 the earth in in our in, i shouldn't say in earth in our world you know gravity is a weak um uh, force well obviously if that was a, a vehicle from another dimension gravity must be a strong force in their dimension because they they exhibit much different properties hmm. so and the other question is are we actually seeing a reflection of some phenomenon from another dimension um and that that's it so i don't and to answer your question i don't think there's a singular phenomenon uh, or phenomenon that is actually involved in ufos or uaps i think we're observing a number of different things Hmm. And I don't discount anything at this point because we just don't know. Yeah. It might be one of those, like, uh, you know, I think it was in like 19, 18, 1880 or something like that. The head of the patent office said that there's like no new patents. So there's no point in patenting new things. And, you know, like uh, he didn't think there's anything outside of like the gr- grammatophone or whatever, like the, you know, internet, uh, nuclear power, like all that stuff. Like he was like, no, we're good. 18, you know, 1880s was basically the best that we'd ever be. And, uh, you know, similarly, even though it's like 120 years, you know, 140 years later or whatever, um, there's like, we could just be at that point where we think it's 3%. Maybe there's a whole lot out there that we just don't know because we've just reached the the point where we are now. And you never really know how deep the next cavern is until you're in it. That's right. We don't know. Yeah. I, I think the more important thing is, isn't, isn't that it's unknown. I think it's our ability to respond to it rationally. Mm-hmm. That's, that's really important. And that's, that's really true to anything is, you know, what defines it really is your response to it. And so I don't want people to be upset or um, worried about UFOs or UAP. I think they should be um, interested. I think that they should uh, have ever expectation that their government in, in various sectors of our society are, are doing you know competent, responsible kind of work around these things. Um, I, you know, I, the idea, I, I actually checked on some recent reports before I spoke to you to see what's in the popular media. And there's actually some very dark and dire kind of predictions. Um, if, if there was a, an interstellar uh, civilization that was actively observing us on earth with their own entities here, um, it's not because of colonization or they want to take over. It just doesn't make any sense. Um, you have that kind of civilization. They could build a planet if they want to. There's nothing here that they can't access or find someplace else a lot more uh, economically or reasonably than, than Earth. So I don't, I'm not worried about an invasion. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I think if anything, we're, we're, we're interesting um, organisms for them to, you know, observe as, as we, we have this nascent intelligence that we're trying to work out and learn to do manipulate our environment without destroying our environment. Um, I think it's, it's more or less a study. Further, I suspect that, that um, you know, people say, well, they've been around for a long, long time. Well, we don't know that it isn't, you know, a small group of observers from someplace else that they just have different, you know, temporal kind of existence than we have. So, um, but we know, and it's really interesting, um, there seems to be a temporal element to this kind of stuff, because during the, the American Revolution, a lot of the leaders like George Washington and Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson and John Adams all had UFO experiences. 
And I just, you, you sit there and you think that's really interesting that they all saw something. Uh, Thomas Paine saw something crossing a river in a boat. So um, there, there seems to be an element to um, a lot of this stuff that the observation has a component that's, in, that's you know, looking at um, what's going on in earth in terms of historical aspects. So for me to look at that and say, gee, that happened, there's a temporal aspect to that. And, you know, back in the day when I was doing my, my graduate work, you know, getting my doctorate, there was a lot of discussion going on about, you know, the ultimate spaceship being a time machine. And so really what we're talking about is interdimensional, either information gathering or travel, even if it's, it's virtual. And that, that's a very temporal aspect. So my, my reading on um, time travel is limited, but I think, are we only allowed to go backwards? Like we only can, like we can only look I, backwards I or, or something? Well, I, I, I think backwards is easier. I don't think there's really a limit. According to Einstein, it's a river. It goes both ways. Okay. So uh, you, like Bertrand Russell and Whitehead and some of those people like Bracken and uh, Laszlo. It's, it's really doesn't seem to be limited in direction. And, and, and by the way, direction is our perspective. It isn't necessarily due to anything to do with reality. It's just from where we sit, we're not smart enough to understand time in a different way. Mm -hmm. And that then limits how we can use our mathematics and our, to understand our universe to then see it in that way. Because it's from, ultimately it's from our perspective. That's right. Yeah. So, but I guess to like on a higher level, like debunking one myth is like X filing aliens messing with people. <laughs> probably not true. You know, um, the, uh, cause like, you're right. Like if you're, if you're an interstellar creature, there's nothing really special on earth other than like us, but you know, like, well, there's nothing, I don't think that they could already learn from observing us that they'd have to come here. I mean, we, it, in our own puny ways, we were able to now define exoplanets um, to a fairly good extent using spectroscopy, means of spectroscopy and polarimetry, where we can actually determine the composition of the atmosphere and the, the cycles of that planet with, with a fair amount of certainty. So a really advanced civilization would be able to look at Earth and say, wow, the, the dominant species is just kind of like crapping all over the planet. And you know, why would, why would somebody do that? And, you know, that they know our planet's under stress. They know other species are under stress. They would know that there are extinction events going on. Um, so I think probably they're observing um, if they are, I'm assuming it, it could be that way. Um, what happens to, um, you know, earth organisms that are based in DNA when they are, they are stressed to the extent that they're being stressed now. Yeah, it makes you wonder, like, where are we going to be in a couple of years, you know, with our technology and, and our rate, and then if there's other things out there. But in our, in our, our, our pre-conversation, we were talking about how um, that uh, mo most likely life, uh, you had a really fun phraseology, so I want to put it into it. But like the larger thing is, one of the recent reports by the Pentagon, they were saying that a lot of the reporting is lower um, because people don't really feel comfortable to talk about it in a serious way, even like trained people like your father or yourself or, or people that might have seen it firsthand that actually know what they're seeing, right? They have like the training to understand it. Um, they don't want to come forward because there's a stigma and then, you know, like no one wants to get their life messed up because of that. And you were, um, you were recently writing a book and, you know, your first chapter was just, you know, having a discussion on like what coming in contact with other things that are unknown. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll let you tell it, but like, I think there's an interesting parallel there between an environment where people just don't feel like they can talk about something openly uh, resulting in us not being able to study it uh, in, a, in a purposeful way. Well, I, I actually, it was a, it's a major publishing house, science and engineering publishing house, and they rejected my book because I have a chapter and it was one of the chapters on, on it's actually called First Contact. And it's, you know, a discussion about um, 
how we look at dimensions as a mathematician. I work in you know topology uh, area, symplectic geometry and stuff. Um, so you know that that we look at our our, our um, physical environment much differently. But I also said in the chapter that. Um, we're probably not going to meet something that's going to stand up and salute. It's going to be a, a, a non-complex form of life. And the, you know, um, the, 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 they see, keep asking, are we, you know, are we alone? Are we alone? Are we alone? There's no way we're alone. We exist. Therefore others exist too. Um, and, and that's a, that's an issue. Now the question is, um, how is that life, you know, presented in the universe? And I said, um, you know, based on our experience on living on earth with other, um, you know, species that do share our DNA uh, and are fairly intelligent, our assumptions that, that intelligent alien life would have technologically sufficient capability to communicate beyond their solar systems. This is in the chapter. And I said, this is simply foolish because not all, intelligent beings are able to manipulate their environment in such a way to create communications technologies that can tra transverse light, light years, let alone parsecs. And I said, hence the paradox of the tele telepathic dolphin. So, you know, because dolphins are technically as intelligent as human beings. Um, and so it's, it's flawed thinking that to assume that intelligent life in the universe would be sufficiently intelligent enough and in the same level of development to communicate with us. And the other part of it is that, you know, we depend largely on microwave communications. And it's, it's crazy to assume that, you know, intelligent life is going to use microwave communications. There's so much out there. I mean, if you ever, anyone who's ever watched any type of sci-fi, you know, Star Trek, Stargate, big fan of Stargate, you know, um, there's uh, like an alien species that look like aliens. I don't know if you ever find a surrogate, but um, they they would they would work with humans because they could never they didn't the idea of using like um like a self propelled uh thing like a gun wouldn't mm -hmm. come to them. They they would think of something else. So they they built their entire civilization on a different type of methodology. So they used uh they would like grab the the surrogate team because they they would think in a in a way that they weren't accustomed to is to help them with their problems. Um, which is an interesting thing, you know, imagine like that kind of um, Venn diagram ability to meet up with other species and then a, 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 a apply a problem in a diversified way in terms of like the, the thinking, like even in team in terms of teams now on earth, like people love to uh, divergent and different ways of thinking, because then you can come, you can come up with solutions in a, in a very unique way. Um, I, I imagine like the taking that to extreme would be, you know, with any other type of potential life forms out there. Um, when you look at whatever problem that may exist, but, well, um, you know, Enrico Fermi, who was a well-known pharmacist, pharmacist, uh, physicist, excuse me. And on the Manhattan project, he, he actually, you know, was called something, the great silence in, in the Milky Way. Cause we hadn't heard from anybody. And he presupposed that other civilizations, uh, that had not developed anything that were capable of communicating. So, he assumed there was silence that um, because there wasn't a conversation at the other end, right? But we, we can't assume that because we're, we're not able to detect it. It's just that we don't have the, 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 the technology to detect it. Yeah, so like a Star Trekian universe where like they're on a different wavelength, they're in a different, um, you know, temporal, like there's just so many different things that we, we can't know because we don't think in that way. And in time, like we might be able to figure it out because we can understand technology and stuff, but it's not like an, like a, an immediate first step. If I'm like uh, covering you, right? Like it's like, we, we think and have a different perspective. So it's like to see those things, um, we wouldn't know to look for them. It would be like a rock to us, but they're not actually rock. It's like, you know, a, a different but thing. That's it. That's our, our phenomenology, our perception that we are limited. So yeah, I agree. You know, I, there's a, there's a, you know, people really think that there's a, a real possibility that we're under observation all the time. Um, and that's, I think, possibly a little paranoid. Um, I, I mean, we're under observation a great deal from our own government, <laughs> yeah. but, but that's, that's, that's uh, our own species uh, yeah. working against us. So, 
Yeah. So, um, so you have the first chapter, which, you know, if they don't, if they don't want it, I think you should just, you know, put it online or self-publish it. Like that's such an interesting conversation to make sure it's out there. Well, um, it's a chapter of a, of a book on space, um, engineering. And, um, I think at some point you're going to talk to Dr. Bill Kramer. I'm not sure. Um, about, um, emergency response and, and UFOs and how that affects planning and stuff and what it means in his world. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it's part of the, the larger conversation of how, how we build our new space organizations to deal with, you know, the realities, uh, potential realities um, of the, the new space community, because we're, we don't have um, the restrictions and the, and the conserving behavior and policy that NASA and other government agencies have. I mean, we just don't really know. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there is no protocol that's really been developed for, uh, space organizations. And in, in this chapter, I say, Hey, we, we have to be prepared for this. We need a protocol. We need a protocol for a lot of things because, you know, like I said, there are a lot of people out looking for UFOs that aren't trained observers, and we may have people testing spacecraft and, you know, you don't want people, um, interfering with your test work. You don't want uh, security issues around test regions and uh, test ranges. Um, As we get into the the commercial sector, this becomes a a serious issue. And God forbid on social media, somebody says, oh, you're flying a UFO. Um, You could have some real security issues with with your flight operations group. Uh, So those those were part of the issues. You know, what, what do we do about public perception? How does this affect operations of a space organization? And what does it mean if we actually, um, you know, kind of like run into it for want of a better term, aliens? And, and what do we do with that? Uh, and it's, it's something that no one's talked about. Mm-hmm. And a lot of this has been turned over to the FAA <laughs> and they're, they're not talking. Yeah. So uh, in, in your opinion, over the last several decades, uh, how should they have been handling, you know, the gathering of information and this, this sensitive topic? Like well, how, if you were... presumably, so I'm, I'm assuming there, there is an, a, a senior office, executive office somewhere in the government, uh, uh, maybe a two, three letter office that is quite well-versed in this phenomenon. They, they, and, and right now they can do anything they want because they, they can lowjack us with our telephones. So they know everything that we do. Um, so if, if we say, Hey, um, you know, you text your wife, I saw a UFO look out the house that they're going to know it. Um, so I, I, I assume that, um, a large part of the phenomena that the military report, um, kind of avoided, uh, I think the reality is they know a great deal more than they're saying. Um, and if there are aliens that are, functioning higher life forms visiting the earth uh, i would bet a lot of money that our government has had conversations with them mm-hmm. uh, i watched a couple interviews with the last few presidents like obama bill clinton uh, i think someone even asked george bush and they asked like hey are there aliens and like their responses were basically i had someone look into it but i can't tell you <laughs> it's like why can't you say like well that's so weird um so like the the presidents have the interest and they set the security clearance so like they're but i wonder if they found anything probably right like hopefully it hasn't just been well, like, thrown I, in like waste i said bin. i think i think they know something um i think that that uh they're much more um informed than any of us are that mm-hmm. I, I would hope so anyway and i i assume that if we are um being visited by uh, some non-human non-earth or originating intelligence that they are aware and they have some type of um level of communications um the the thing i'm concerned about um is that there seems to be a growing um kind of threat discussion around you know non-human life and i i think that's a bad thing um because that, to me, that means that it's the American people are going to end up spending a lot of money on things that may or may not be helpful. 
Um, and of course, now we have the Space Force. So, you know, who, I bet, you know, you look at that in the Space Force, and you're thinking, oh, who, do, who wants to be the um, UFO officer in charge? Because <laughs> that could be the end of his or her career. And uh, that, that's a little disconcerting. But, you know, Hawking was um, really concerned about us um, communicating with, with aliens. It, 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 it worried him. Um, and he was a pretty smart guy. And he, he uh, had a warning, said, you know, let's, let's not talk to aliens until we, we really know what their motivations are. Well, part of the problem is, is that for us to guess what non-human motivations are is pretty darn difficult. So, um, you know, but Hawking's main thing was don't broadcast your location. Yeah. Well, they, they know where we are. They, they, can, they can see us. Um, the, the question is, you know, we don't know what their motivation would be here. Um, but, you know, we, we've seen some um, unusual visitors to our solar system, some um, objects you know, coming through our solar system that have exhibited unusual dynamic um, patterns in terms of flight through the solar system. And, and that's, you know, caused a Harvard um, astronomer, I can't remember his name, I'm sorry, um, to look at the potential of alien, um, you know, UFO. So, um, Okay, his name is Abby Loeb. Yeah. Are you so, referring to the one that looked like a ship? It was like a year, a couple of years ago. Yeah, um, Uma, Uma or something. I'm trying to remember. Yeah. It yeah. looked like a cigar or something. Yeah, yeah. And he's, of course, made a name for himself saying, yeah, he thinks it was, um, um, you know, intelligent life somehow. Hmm. So that's, just, that's I, weird. I, I, well, well, it had very unusual um you know behavior yeah. and how, how do you when when you see reports like that how are you deconstructing it so you read this guy's report or or you know the tic tac report and you see these things like how are like how are you breaking it down and taking it from a a point of like emotion like hey what is this you know potential fear to rationalizing it and then using your material science uh background you know if it's a ship like how would i build this type of thing like i'm just curious like how do you run through it when you see, you know, these types of reports, you know, specifically the last two we were talking about? Well, for me, the, um, the object that, that was the um, uh, interstellar object that is giant kind of, um, as you said, cigar shaped oblong object, it had a very unusual uh, flight dynamic to the, to, to our solar system. And that became of interest to me and, and others, uh, looking at, you know, how, why is there obviously an issue, uh, this, this unusual kind of dynamics in terms of flight. And that was, that was a big question. Um, that was the thing that got my attention because it didn't behave as other objects that we've seen fly through, through our, our solar system. But, you know, we're, we're using some, some new technology and the, the PANSTARS um, Panoramic Survey Telescope and Rapid Response System, which was developed for near earth object uh, detection um, was used in, in, so that there was um, kind of something weird because there was a, a dynamic change where um, the, the object uh, kind of changed its dynamics director, its tra trajectory that we might have seen with the comet or something, but it didn't have a comet tail, cometary tail. Mm -hmm. And that to me was exceedingly uh, strange. Um, but, you know, we looked at things like differential heating in terms of moving uh, asteroids um, from, you know, threats to the earth where we actually launch technology and we change the, either the color of the surface of the asteroid or use another technique to actually change the differential heating of the asteroid, which would over time change its trajectory. And 
So, you know, what, what would cause that kind of trajectory change in that period of time with an object that big and nobody could figure it out and we still haven't. Hmm. So we, we, we just, it was very strange that it seemed to have what was just this um, acceleration um, that uh, it was kind of strange. It just didn't seem to be a normal trajectory, normal dynamics, particularly for something that large. And it was rather large. Yeah, the scale is always really hard with space. Like, um, like they always, you know, have it zoomed in pretty well. So then you, they don't have, I don't know, at least the images I, I see, they never have like that little like a uh, radial on the bottom left that says like, this is like an inch is like a mile or something like that, like on a map. But maybe I'm just, I, I got to look, look at the right stuff because uh, there's like that pale blue dot thing that uh, Carl Sagan and, and the people, I think it was Voyager, I don't remember, but they turned around and, and snapped a picture of Earth. And there's like that little beam of light and then a little speck and that's Earth. And it's like the specs actually quite large, uh, but not really that large. If you look at like the universe, but yeah, so I'm like the universe is like a weird thing in terms of scale. It's just in general. So like it could be big, could be large. Um, but you're, you're saying it's, it's pretty big and to move that mass, uh, and the way that it did, it, it, it doesn't the way it did on its trajectory out of the solar system. That was the thing that, uh, really, um, gave a lot of people like, well, that's kind of weird. Hmm. Um, so that was, that was the, um, um, whole thing behind it. Uh, and I'm going to try to say the name Uma Mua, which uh, says scout or messenger from far away in Hawaiian language. So, um, so anyway, but we, we don't know um, why it, it behaved the way it did. Uh, the fact is that we haven't seen a lot of these uh, trans um, stellar objects yet. And we may learn that they just fly differently than other things. That their 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 dynamics are different. That's interesting. And then, then there's more people looking into it. And then I guess we just have to get lucky and wait for more to come. So that or try to replicate it in some way to see if uh oh, they're, they're working on on replicating it now. I mean they've done all kinds of simulations. Um there are lots of folks involved in that. It's 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 just that you know it's really something that we just haven't seen before and that's that's a big part of it. As a scientist, I imagine that's really exciting, though, like um, to see something and not know what it is and then be able to potentially break it apart and make it understood. Uh, yeah, so well, like, that's what we try to do. It hasn't always happened. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, you know, of the two things, though, like uh, study something that is known uh, or study something unknown. That's unknown is like probably more fun. Uh, well, yeah, science is about unknown. So, yeah, we like we like things that are unknown. So we learn th things and it helps us define the things we've defined already in a different way sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, you build, you know, data on data, you build knowledge and then you can make better comparisons and, and better definitions and better, you know, just overall better analysis. Mm -hmm. But and there, there are, you know, significant um, problems still like uh, this, this guy from Harvard has, has done a good job. He's at Harvard. So he's, protected to a certain degree um so he you know the last time i'm trying to think was it john mack who was a psychiatrist at harvard that did studies of people who said they'd been abducted by aliens and he could get away with that because he was at harvard <laughs> and so that that reduced the level of uh criticism and, and general abuse from the scientific and medical communities um so the, the big issue uh, with, with a lot of this is the fact that people don't want to talk about UFOs and alien life. And, and where I love the X-Files, it's made things kind of difficult for a lot of scientists because, you know, particularly in the early years of the X-Files, you had some really goofy stuff with, with real science sometimes. And it, it didn't, it wasn't helpful long-term because for the non-scientists, I think it was um, problematic and, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm hoping we can, we can get back to good science. You know, this, this whole pandemic thing has, has really stretched the bounds of, of um, realistic science when it comes to reporting, because I, I, half the time I cringe when I hear, you know, reporters talking about the COVID virus and vaccine and things, and I'm going, just shut up. Just let, you know, 
just tell people it's a good idea to get a vaccination. There's a reality of a, of a serious virus and, and beyond that, just shut up. Um, but apparently that's not going to happen. <laughs> so. Yeah. I wish there was like a, no, similarly, I wish there was more like a, like, like here are the questions that we have found that people have here's an expert who will answer your questions. If you, yeah. you know, if, if you want the links to the peer reviewed research, could check the show notes or oh, something like that, you know, well, uh, well, rocket times. I told you we're starting that, uh, I guess this month sometime is a, a website, rockettimes.com that is science-based it's engineers and scientists and senior level people with doctorates. Um, and, and one guy with a master's degree from MIT that are actually commenting and writing things and looking at, um, resources and sources, um, for people to do their own research and to learn something. And, and we've been working on this project for a number of years. It used to be under, it takes a rocket scientist. It's actually the company called sometimes it takes a rocket scientist. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, we've, we've just said enough is enough. We've got to have, you know, better science. It used to be that in, in the U S government, we had senior scientific entities. Okay. That were really, um, supporting of government agencies when it came to scientific matters and research and um, how technologies are developed and applied. And one was Los Alamos National Laboratory. It was at one point in time, the foremost scientific laboratory in the Western world. And then you have, you know, other entities in the government that are part of uh, DOD, like the Naval Research Laboratory and the Air Force Institute, Air Force Research Laboratory, uh, Naval Research Laboratory, um, you had Phillips Laboratories. So you have all these different entities in the government that, you know, human organizations that provided really good science and really good information and uh, Livermore and Sandia and Brookhaven and Argonne. And um, for some reason, our, our elected and appointed officials aren't very good at interfacing with these organizations anymore. And it's it's really debilitating in, in, the, in the ways they're making uh, policy. Um, because they're making bad decisions a lot of the time. And that, that I, I'm very concerned about. Um, and, the, and the inability of the scientific and engineering communities to respond to those bad decisions effectively is, is, a, is a major issue. You know, I, I had a conversation over the weekend with a young woman who's a scientist and she's looking at getting her, she said her real job now that she's done with her fellowship and she's interested in, in climate response kind of positions. And I said, well, okay, let's, let's back this up. And I said, everything that presents itself as a threat to us, whether they're aliens or, or climate issues or water shortages or transportation infrastructures or whatever, it's not the actual problem. It's the way we respond to it. So if you're looking for this to be, to be a response expert in your life, you want to be in an organization that has a, a relative um, level of competency uh, in terms of you know information and culture that allows people to make effective decisions and a, and create effective solutions. And I said a lot of times we're just not doing that. There's this this continual we'll wait till it gets really bad and then we'll have a knee jerk response. And if it's really really bad, we'll just throw a lot of money at it. And unfortunately, that's not terribly efficient. And generally, it doesn't give us the outcome we want. At the, um, I'm curious. So for, for people listening, are there good ways to, um, I mean, good resources, like your thing's going to come online pretty soon. And I'm happy to have that in the show notes to help people point them in a good direction. When they see stuff like this to, um, like, how would you encourage them to think about it, or is there resources you well, suggest? There, check there out? are there are great places to go, and, and this website's going to have a, a lot of great, great places to go. The National Academies uh, is a nonprofit organization that actually works directly for the United States government, and they do real scientific and technological studies on everything you could ever possibly want to know anything about, from space, not necessarily UFOs, unfortunately but uh, space and communication systems and all kinds of technologies and agriculture and transportation and uh, weather and uh, geology and anything, oceanography, biology, medicine, the National Academies, it's the National Academies of 
science, medicine, and engineering, and they have free publications. I mean, it's, it's amazing. I always tell people every year, pick out your favorite uh, publication and send it the link to all your friends so they can download a book on it, you know, over the holidays. Um, and pity you because you're a giant nerd. <laughs> but, um, you know, we, we have wonderful resources. We really do. Um, the American Association for the Advancement of Science has a program called On-Call Scientists, where they work with NGOs and communities on, on really specific problems. And I used to volunteer for that. And there, are, I, I volunteered for, I don't know, eight or nine years. So these are great programs. There are, are lots of places to go for real information. Um, and the, the idea to give people direction so they can make their own decisions, learn to gather their own information and read. Um, and there's also uh, several sites on the internet where you can actually download peer reviewed papers. You know, one of the things that bugs me as a scientist is that we have the government pays for and universities pay for all these publications, all these journals from professional societies, peer reviewed journals, you know, tomes of work across disciplines and the average American is no longer able to access any of that information because we basically said we're no longer an open source society. You know, years, you know, five, six, seven years ago, I could go to any of the state universities in any state in the, in the United States and basically access online peer reviewed articles and download them for my research. You can't do that anymore. I maintain memberships in like for professional societies, just so I can access information for my work. And it's, it's expensive. I mean, you know, you invest over a thousand dollars a year just to access the information you need for your work. And Europe is a little bit better. They have more open source um, kinds of things, but um, we're going in the wrong direction. We, we, we really need good information that people can access in terms of their own level of uh, understanding and have it reliable and, um, you know, available when they need it. And I'm, I get very concerned that we're going in the, in the really wrong direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I hate the paywall. Like we already paid for it as taxpayers. We shouldn't have to pay for it twice. That seems stupid. The, and that, that goes to the, the UAPs. Like if, if everything's paywalled or it's not understood, or you can't even talk about it to a great extent, like how are we going to get anything that's a uh, conclusion worthy of really uh, understanding, you know, like we really need to delve into and have an open uh, dialogue uh, in terms of, um, you know, books, uh, you know, fiction, nonfiction, and then movies, fiction, nonfiction. Are there uh, ones that you'd recommend to people who are interested in the subject either to learn more or just to enjoy more of the space? Yeah. I think there's a great book. I think the guy's Peter Ward. It was life as we do not know it. And he talks about, you know, the evolution of white light, life on earth and in what it would look like in the universe. It's a very good book. Um, it's one that we had listed on, uh, so it, it takes a rocket scientist for a number of years. Um, there are some other books uh, that are okay. Um, I should look behind me. Um, uh, Carl Sagan has a bunch that are great, like Contact. It's fiction, but it's a good one. Or Contact Pale Blue Dot. Yeah. Yeah, Carl Sagan got very, um, towards the end of his life, he became very kind of transient when it came to talking about extraterrestrial life. And he wrote another book called The Demon Haunted World. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I read that one. It's good. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there, there are, are some actually really good books. Uh, but the Peter Ward's book, I really like. And I have it in, included in a new course I'm working on. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, what, what concerns me is that we don't have, uh, open, competent, functional discussion, because here's the thing by, uh, 2025, uh, 50% of space operations will be in the hands of private companies and not having protocols for private companies for first contact. I, I think is is derelict, if not incompetent, um, you know, because the reality is it's it's not going to be you know, uh, Captain you know Lightyear Buzz Lightyear meeting an alien. It's it's going to be you know, some some 
some you know woman engineer with a master's degree going oh hey how are you doing um and that that's that's reality uh that we have this this disconnect between um government space and the private space sector and of course then we have the billionaire boys club oh that's great well no it's not great because we need more diversity in technology and we need better technology and the the current uh, nasa administrator um oh god what's his name i never remember their names they never uh, well to do that much the last guy that trump appointed who brainstein brainstein burdens yeah something like that the guy before him that trump appointed thought a meteorite was going to kill him so uh it's a, yeah, this guy's a former member of congress oh. and, well maybe uh, they can get funding the bezos guy uh bill is it bill nelson bill nelson nelson sounds familiar yeah Doc, senator bill nelson yeah the other guy before him was burden burdenstein or something and he was he actually said on national public radio that he thought he was going to be killed by a meteorite. And I'm, I'm sitting there going, why, what, why? So, yeah, but, um, honestly, um, he's like all for this, this billionaire boys club. And I'm going, this is, this is, um, frankly, incompetent. We, we need much better, um, leadership and we just we just don't have it mm-hmm. well it's weird too because like um we we don't al- we don't invest in these areas then we re- allow people that have made money to do it for us and then assume they're going to do a good job uh, as a public service but that's that literally they're not motivated in that way like the way well, that I, they made money and make money is not for public good it's for like, well, you, you, you know there's this this conspiracy right now that the reason why the rich boys are doing what they're doing is it it limits access to space because the aliens don't want us to have access beyond near earth orbit i mean mm. that that's a conversation that people have had and are having and i don't think it's the case but um we just have a lot of stupid right now we need and, and this by the way goes across entire areas of technology that we're just not diversified enough to be resilient enough for for future development for uh, better economic competition for better technological competition and it, it a lot of it comes out of you know these really kind of antitrust policies that the government's developed in the last you know 10 or 15 years and the only thing i can say about the new space sector once once we move beyond uh the cubesat um culture and i'm not criticizing cubesats i think they're great um because you can you know high schools can now build their own satellites it's it's fantastic um, but once we move beyond the CubeSat culture and we create, you know, diversification in, in the private space sector, and you, you, we re- really see, you know, competitive technologies, uh, the probability increases. And like I said, the five-year uh, time frame that we're going to see first contact, and it's not going to be a governmental agency; it's going to be a private corporation. That makes sense, especially with an um, uh, like Musk, like all of his plans are are quite large. He's not thinking um, low Earth orbit. He's also received billions of dollars of U.S. taxpayers' funding. People forget that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's been used pretty well though. So far. Um, it it took some time. It took some time, but they got there. Um, yeah. you know, if you talk to people from Ames. You know, parts of NASA were very frustrated because of the turnover of their engineers at SpaceX for a number of years was like 35, 40 percent. And I think they've stabilized and I think they've much better leadership. And in the beginning, they, it was it was tough. Mm-hmm. Um, the tech sector has never been good at engineering. and It's never been good at systems engineering, which I think is ironic. But um, they're, they're doing better in, in the beginning. You know, with Blue Origin, NASA made fun of his engineers when Bezos sent his engineers to Johnson Space Center. NASA was actually making fun of them because they really didn't understand what they were doing. And look at what Blue Origin has done in terms of their, um, you know, control systems. They've, they've done stuff with their, their launch systems that no one else had done before. And it's pretty remarkable. Um, hmm. no, I, did, I didn't know that there was anything particularly special about the Bezos stuff. The, I've been waiting for like more of the larger, like going to the moon type technology to get built for, from Blue Origin. 
well, we'll see if that happens. I, yeah. I, I, I'd like to see it happen. Um, but we'll, we'll, it's, it's, that's a really expensive kind of thing to do. And I, I wonder if they're not looking for money from the government to do that because it, that's a, that's a different um, model. Like, you know, we focus on, you know, horizontal takeoff and landing and we, we our, our space plane team is together and they're going to be announced, I think, September timeframe. But Jim Kassler, uh, Dr. James Kassler is our uh, test pilot, flight test guru right now. He's a good guy. Um, and uh, he was my account manager years ago when I did some work on the Los Alamos recompete, the contract. And um, Jim just left his job head of space systems at North Dakota uh, University, University of North Dakota. And um, we're looking at different projects uh, for our power storage stuff and things for lunar architecture and applications. And um, he and I were talking and I, I said, you know, the, the difference between what we're doing and everybody else is doing is that we're horizontal and they're vertical. So we have, I like to call an 80% advantage. And that is when these vertical systems, even though they're doing some really interesting things and they are, um, you, you lose 80% of your payload to get out of the, the gravity well of earth. So horizontal systems, you, you lose a lot less of your payload. You've got a lot more payload to work with. And the potential, uh, everybody on our team knows, now agrees that we will be able to have a heavy lift space plane in, in, in five, six year time frame. And, um, you know, if you'd asked me, you know, 15 years ago, when, when we'd be in orbit, I would have said 2010, 2012, um, because we had a good group, we had money, we had everything. And then we got hit with 2008, just like everybody else. And um, we, we lost our, our funding structure, our funding group. Um, and we've been able to, you know, reconstruct a lot and create new opportunities. But at the same time, um, a lot of competitive technologies early on were literally wiped out by the 2008 um, uh, bank crisis. And, but you're starting to see stuff come back, but also there's stuff out there that nobody's talking about. And I think that's really interesting because mm -hmm. some of it is, is really exceptional. Um, there's a group called Electric Sky with Robert Millman. Um, and they're, they remind me of um, the real Tesla in a lot of ways because they're looking at um, you know, launch vehicles using uh, basically broadcast electricity. That's a bad description, but it's, it's kind of similar um, to some of the stuff that Tesla was talking about. Yeah, the Tesla so there, towers. Yeah, there's a there's a there's a lot of stuff coming out that I think in the next five ten years we're going to see mature as technologies. I hope the U.S. Um, appreciates the government appreciates the potential for diversifying launch technologies. I think that's really important. The other thing's going to be with all the people looking for UFOs that it's very likely that people are going to start seeing a lot of these research vehicles and go, "Hey, what is that? <laughs> Where did it come from?" Mm -hmm because a lot of these uh, research vehicles are a lot different looking than anything else. And if you remember that the CIA with Project Oxcart, which was the A-12, the predecessor to the SR-71, people didn't know what it was and they thought it was a UFO. So the, the one thing that, that I, I have really kind of in the back of my mind that a lot of these things that people are seeing could possibly be research vehicles that other people are working on because we're gonna see an explosion in that, in that area in the next, you know, seriously in the next 10 years. And hopefully the United States stays in, in the leadership in these areas because, you know, we really do have the best people. Um, and and, and I, I, I just hope we keep focusing on that. Um, but also I hope your listeners, you know, are, are vocal enough in, in their local and, and state governments and even federal government that um, the UAP situation really isn't, isn't, it's not just some, um, what would you call it, kind of um, popular kind of thing to talk about, that it's, it's actually a, a real issue for our country. And, you know, like I said, it's not the problem, it's, it's the way you respond to it, right? And, and we want to look at this as an opportunity and not as a threat, because I think we don't know what something is, it doesn't automatically mean it's a threat. That's really stupid. Mm -hmm. 
um, every time say, oh, we don't know what it is, you know, let's build a gun. <laughs> let's, let's get an interceptor. No, let, let's, let's look at this rationally because ultimately it says a lot more about us than it does about potential aliens in terms of the way we look at stuff and, and, and we define things because, and anything that is a first contact, you know, like I said, if I may be talking to the person out there who makes first contact in this decade and he or she, I, I want them not to be afraid, number one, and number two, I don't want them to be hostile, and number three, you know, remember you're speaking for the rest of humanity, <laughs> because um, if something has made an effort to be here and contact us, we should make an effort, you know, to, to be reasonable and say, hey, I'm happy you're here, and who are you, and why are you here, and, you know, uh, understand what that means for us as a species because um, it changes everything for us as a species. Uh, suddenly we have potential to exceed, you know, everything we've ever thought was possible. And that's what first contact means to me is that we can, we can achieve things that we will, would have never been able to achieve before. And that's, that's the thing that I, that I see as an extraordinary opportunity is that first contact for, for humanity means that we might actually survive as a species. And that was Ryan Mendez. You know, we talked about a variety of topics, UFOs, you name it, uh, you know, the cigar thing and you know, what was unique about it. So if you like this episode, you know, go to learnwithgold.com, subscribe, tell it to your friends and all those types of things. And, you know, let me know what you think. I'm always happy to make content for something you want to learn or get to know more about.